something happens now. That did something, didn't it? Um, the, uh, this Reformation Study Bible has my notes on John's Gospel in it, which at least means I didn't correct myself on the way over when I was revi- <laughs> reflecting on it. And uh, I think these first appeared in the early 90s in the uh, New Geneva Study Bible, and then they appeared in some other Reformation Bible, and then this, the Reformation Study Bible. But there's an interesting uh, little story in our household about it. When the first edition of this came out 30 years ago, uh, when it arrived... Uh, you know, I checked on the front to make sure that the contributors were listed and that my name was smelled, spelled correctly, these kinds of things. And I left it there on the kitchen table. And uh, our Gracie was like six or seven at the time, Sarah. And uh, one of her buddies came over, and, uh, and they were sitting there. And, uh, and Grace opens it up and, and, and points out under the list of contributors my name. So that's my dad. And this little girl looked right at her, and her jaw dropped. She said, your dad wrote the Bible? <laughs> so so we, we had to correct that. No, no, he put a few notes in it, but didn't write it. Uh, but one of our fun stories uh, with the kids uh, growing up. Uh, the uh, passage before us tonight is uh, just five verses from John 6. Uh, John 6. But if you uh, look at your bulletin, uh, you, you'll see what you might think is a misprint, and it isn't. The title of the sermon is God's Gift to the Son. And you might have thought it should have said God's Gift of the Son, because he did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. But the passage is actually about the gift that God gives to the Son. And John 6, 35-40 talk about that reality, the Father's gift to the Son. And so I think it's worthy of our attention um, at any moment, but perhaps especially in that season of the year when we focus so much on God's gift uh, of the Son. Just to give you the context, in chapter 5, you may recall, there was the feeding of several thousands of people, uh, where with just a few loaves and fish, this an enormous group uh, was fed. And so not surprisingly, when he left, many of them followed him uh, to see what might happen next. This was true of his ministry. Some people just were fascinated by what he did. And whether they believed in him or not, they followed him around to see what might happen next. And so he then moves in, as we get to it in chapter 6, with his discussion after another miracle where he walks on water. And many of those present witnessed that also. And then he begins referring to himself as a kind of bread. And then that follows for several verses, five of which we will look at uh, beginning in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Uh, The word conspiracy is an interesting kind of a word in our language. I think we normally uh, use it uh, negatively to refer to some kind of a conniving together of 
parties to do some kind of an evil thing, uh, and it can uh, be used that way. Uh, Webster, for instance, defines it as uh, a joining in a secret agreement to do an unlawful or wrongful act or to use such means to accomplish an, a lawful end. But there's a more neutral sense of the term where it merely refers to people conspiring together, thinking with each other, and it could be neutral as well as negative. The Oxford English Dictionary uses, in this neutral sense, defining it as a, a union or combination of persons for one end or purpose, harmonious action or effort. So it is conspiring, working with someone else. And Ralph Waldo Emerson, in his uh, Ode to Beauty, where he celebrates the value and loveliness of beauty itself, uh, he says at one point in that lengthy poem, All that's good and great with thee, beauty, all that's good and great with thee, stands in deep conspiracy. So he sees beauty itself as the results of some kind of a conspiring together of benevolent beings uh, to do a good thing. And I would suggest to you that what Jesus touches upon here in John 6, and again in John 10, and in several other places, is the conspiracy between the Father and the Son to rescue every one of those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Which is not only an expression, Lamb's Book of Life, that often occurs in the Book of Revelation, but it appears several other times, all the way back to Moses, where against the enemies of the Israelites, uh, he urges that their name would be blotted out from the book of life. So, all the way from Moses to the close of the canon, the scripture speaks on occasion of a book in which the Godhead has actually, in some sense, written the names, right? In a divine penmanship that's clearer than mine, I can bet. And he has written the names of those who will live forever. And then every now and then a passage refers back to the reality. Now the expression book of life does not appear here in these five verses in John's Gospel. The reality of it, however, surely does. So I'd like to call your attention to three parts of this passage together. And it is a brief passage that will help us. The first thing he says is that those who come to Jesus will be satisfied. And the second thing in verse 36 is that many of those who had observed his recent miracles did not believe in him. And then in that context, we move in the third place to the verses that follow, and that is that all of those uh, who do come to him uh, will, uh, will never, ever be lost. And so we look at those three things together because uh, the, the, the fourth gospel, John's gospel, is often called uh, the gospel of belief, the book of belief, because at the end he says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and believing have life in his name. But John also candidly records disbelief all the way through the gospel. He actually juxtaposes belief and unbelief. And so if you think of the man born blind, he comes to have his faith restored and then his spiritual faith restored. Because at first he says, I don't even know if he's a sinner or not. And then he comes to believe in Jesus with real faith. And at the end of this remarkable uh, chapter, what we find throughout is the Jewish leaders are hostile to this man just because Jesus healed him. And then they're hostile to his parents and they interrogate them. Who is this guy and why is he saying this and so forth? Their hostility to Christ is so strong that they're hostile to the one that Christ healed and to his parents. And at the end it has this remarkable statement where Jesus says, I've come into the world so that those who do not see may see 
and so that those who do see may become blind. Right? And then they said, are you saying that we are blind? He said, no. If you were blind, then you would come to sight. But now that you say, we see, your blindness remains. And so it's the juxtaposition of both faith and unbelief that we see so often in this uh, particular book. And those who do come to Jesus in in, uh, faith will be satisfied, verse 35 says. I am the bread or sustenance of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, of course, this is figurative language uh, that uh, we sometimes are on a trip and there's a, a road traffic ahead of us and so forth and we wait for an hour and a half or two and we can't get to a place to eat. And we're thirsty and we're hungry and so forth. But in the spiritual sense, um, what he's saying is the greatest hunger, the most profound hunger that we have will only be satisfied for those who come to God through Christ and for them they will surely be satisfied. And so, in the next life, when our desires are purified, then what we desire above all things will be satisfying to us in a way that it never can be now. We have glimpses now, pious moments, moments in prayer or singing a hymn, where we sense that our soul is resonating with God better than it sometimes does, and then it seems like that that can go away so quickly. But in the life to come, when we are perfected, we will have this eager hunger for God and in his very presence, we will be satisfied forever. And so he says, those who come to me, I will never pass out. They will never thirst, and they will never hunger in that life. But then in verse 36, you see the paradox that I mentioned before, that many of those who had observed Jesus' miracles, nonetheless did not believe him. So he says candidly, Truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves but the eating of the loaves was a sign, you see. But they didn't see it as a sign. They didn't see it as a testimony to Christ and to his being God's holy son. They were just happy to catch a free meal. He says, you're not following me for the right reason. The very sign that should have pointed you to me as one exceptionally sent from God only has made you hunger for another free meal or to watch somebody walk on water again so you can tell your grandchildren, you'll never believe what I saw in Galilee one time. I saw a guy walk right across the water, right? And so uh, he says, you've come for the wrong reason. So he had fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two small fish. And these same people, apparently, according to verse 26, uh, had appeared next to him. He says, you're seeking me not because of these signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. So when he says, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe, you see, they not only saw the miracle, but in this particular case, they digested it. Right? They probably could have belched the residue of the miracle. They had actually ingested the miracle. And he says, and yet you do not believe. Uh, Now, this is very, very important, because... You might have thought, I know I did at times, and your friends and relatives might think at times, and surely we sometimes say these kind of things at times, people will sometimes say, I would believe in God if I could just see a miracle. And I've had people tell me that many times in my adult life, and my answer always the same time is, well, then you're one in a million, because most of the people who witnessed Jesus' miracles did not believe in him, and they didn't believe in the Father who sent him. 
There were far more people who cried out for his crucifixion than there were those standing there to comfort him on his cross. So the very people who saw more miracles, because Jesus worked more miracles than anyone else in the Bible. Elijah was close, Moses did a lot, but Jesus was the front runner by a long shot, and many of the people who saw those miracles did not believe. We kid ourselves and we fool ourselves when we say, I would believe in God if I saw a miracle, because 5,000 of these people saw a miracle and did not believe. Only a very small number did. Because the barrier between our heart and God's heart is not that we doubt His His power. The whole universe testifies to His power. The barrier is His holiness and our unholiness. And that unholiness is such a barrier that we will not even acknowledge it to be the barrier And so we blame it on something else. Well, I've got a a miracle deficit disorder, MDD. And if God just addressed my miracle deficit disorder, I would surely believe in Him because I'm a very upright and holy person, right? The only thing missing is a miracle. Well, we fool ourselves if we think that is the case. Uh, We fool ourselves. The real barrier is Gordon's unholy heart and God's holy heart. And that's what creates the distance between us. If he did a hundred miracles to an unholy person, it wouldn't move him. If I'm not mistaken, very early in the Holy Scriptures, there was an individual of considerable influence in Egypt who might have witnessed a few miracles in Moses' day. Right? The whole Nile turned into blood. Locusts and other plagues. And then, of course, the angel of death and many others in between. And did that melt Pharaoh's heart? Not a bit. He hardened further and further and further. And so, uh, notice uh, in in verses 30 to 31, these very people who had witnessed the multiplying of loaves and had eaten some of the fishes also, who had seen him walk on water, this is what they say in verse 30 and 31. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Right? It's the craziest thing. Jesus just gave them bread, and they don't believe, and they ask him to do a miracle like Moses did to give them some bread so that they can believe. Right? And so this is the kind of blindness referred to in chapter 9 of John, that those who see may become blind. Even when they see, they are still blind and still do not get it. And so one of the surest evidences of unbelief is its inability to account for itself. Unbelievers never know why they don't believe. They are completely confused, and almost every time whatever they say to that effect is wrong. And so they are not only lost in the sense they don't know where they're going, but they have no way of accounting for why they're lost. At least sometimes when we're lost, we say, oh, we took exit 19, we probably should have stayed on until exit 20. And we can kind of reconstruct sometimes why we're now lost as we work our way. They never get it right. They always get it wrong. And Jesus addressed such people in this very passage that they had seen miracles, multiple miracles, with their eyes and had ingested one with their digestive system. And they still didn't believe and asked for Jesus to do a work like Moses and provide miraculous bread as they belched out the residue of the miraculous bread. It's just such a remarkable irony that it's uncanny. And so we wonder if the text ended there, if Jesus has come into the world and brought no one to himself, of course, but then the, the next verse is 37 and following, change from those who see and do not believe to those who do come to him. And then the things move around. All that the Father gives me will come to me. 
and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So, who will come to Jesus? There's probably 20 biblical answers to that, because salvation itself is rich, and our faith is rich. But in this passage, who will come to Jesus? And in this passage, the answer is, those that the Father gave to him will come to him. Right? Those whom the Father... All that the Father gives me will come to me. I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. And why will they come to Jesus? Because the redemptive will of the triune God cannot possibly be broken. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And then... My food is not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. The Father and the Son consent together before all worlds to rescue the lost. These realities appear in many other passages in John 17. We have the same kind of language, where in the second verse, in his prayer to the Father, he says, Since you have given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. And in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 9, I'm praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. And in John 10, 28-29, very similar language, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You can't snatch them out of Jesus' hand, and you can't snatch them out of the Father's hand. You've got a double divine grip, it says on there. Our theologians often refer to this as the compact of redemption or the covenant of redemption. Uh, A lovely article in a book that was published eight years ago by David Van Drunen and uh, Scott Clark at Westminster Seminary in Escondido. Uh, There's a chapter in there called The Covenant Before the Covenants. And they go back to describe the covenant between the Father and the Son before all worlds, before anything had been created, to rescue the lost, Right? And this is underneath all the actual covenants we see in the Bible, is this compact between the Father and the Son. And the the remarkable language of it in most of these passages is, it's referred to in the past tense, all that you have given me will come to me. Not all that you will give me, as though in heaven there will be a transaction at some point after the return of Christ. But he refers to in the past. all that the, And he explains his coming here is, I came not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And so what he came to do was the will of the Father who wanted to give these ones to the Son and who had at some earlier time done so. It's always in the past. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. The people whom you gave me, uh, I pray for those whom you have given me. And then it even says, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
and then you gave them to me. So the whole compact is placed prior to history. In fact, 38 times in the fourth gospel, Jesus refers to the Father as the Father who sent me. He calls him he who sent me. And so his entirety of his coming to earth, he does not because he dreamt it up on his own one day and says, here's a good idea. I could rescue fallen people like Adam from their sin and their guilt. No, no, no. He came here because the Father sent him to do this very thing. And so uh, in this compact of redemption between the Father and the Son, the Father is actually thought of as the originator of the will to redeem. And the Son is the one who is happy to complete that will eager to do it. For those of you who have a literary inclination, you can see this beginning at uh, lines about 140 to about lines 320 of Paradise Lost by John Milton, book three. And in book three, uh, Milton writes about what it must have been like before all all worlds for the Father and the Son to covenant uh, to redeem the lost. And the Father is even represented in the poem as speaking to all the heavenly beings up there and says, and who will go for me to rescue my image, referring to Adam and the others like him and so forth. And it says, and all the heavenly choir stood mute. All right. And none doth interfere as patron or intercessor until one like a son of man spake. Right. And he says, Father, your will is just. Right. And then he, he, he goes through about a 40-line thing indicating his desire, his agreement with the Father that we should rescue the lost and that he's willing to go and do it. And as he appeals to the Father to let him go and do it, he says, and so heavenly love shall outdo hellish hate. Right? And that's his motive for coming. And he responds to the Father and comes into the earth to do it. It's just a remarkable thing. And I find it fascinating that this uh, reality and this compact before all worlds is articulated the way it is. Uh, Seven or eight times here, and a couple times in other passages, he says, all that the Father gave me, or has given me. There's a perfectly good way of saying entrusted in Greek. It happens in the New Testament with some frequency. If he wanted to say, all whom the Father has entrusted to me, he would have used that language. Uh, Paul says in uh, Romans 3 that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. He says in Galatians 2, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel. And in 1 Thessalonians, uh, uh, we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. And he says to Timothy, in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. There's a perfectly ordinary way in Greek to refer to someone being entrusted with something. And that's not the word that's used here in John. It's all that the Father has given me. It's deliberate, and it's a choice that is made in the covenant of redemption. And so, ask yourself why we give gifts. We normally do it for one of two reasons. In this fallen and imperfect world, sometimes we give practical gifts, as we call them, things that uh, address the necessities of life. A new winter coat, right? Uh, those kinds of things uh, we do. A new vacuum cleaner. And Mrs. Gordon likes a new one every now and then, right? Uh, and she, she doesn't enjoy them as much as she used to. It was more fun when we had four cats in the house because they all scatter to the four winds, you know, when you run the vacuum cleaner. But she still, though she's not as devilish with it, she still enjoys using it. And it's a very practical thing to do. But then sometimes, in addition to practical things, the other reason we give people gifts is just to please them. 
just to make them happy. We sometimes give gifts because they're gifts of love. And we give someone something just because it delights us to think that they may be delighted. And the Father knows the Son would be delighted to rescue you and me. And so He gives us to the Son. The Son has no needs. He's not a fallen sinner who needs to be forgiven. He has all power in heaven and earth. He lacks nothing. He wants nothing. But His great Redeemer's heart would be thrilled to rescue the lost. And so the Father, who loves His Son, gives us to the Son so that the Son can be pleased and stand one day before the throne of God and say, as Hebrews 2 puts it, Here am I and the children you have given me. Right. That is what He came to the earth to do. And that is what this passage is talking about. So I'd like to say maybe one or two brief words of application about this. First, and I know this could be taken the, the wrong way, but it's not going to be killed with a thousand qualifications. I'm just going to say it. Your redemption does not depend upon the perfection of your commitment to Christ. It simply doesn't. Your imperfection cannot undo the perfection of the Godhead when the Father and the Son, before all worlds, commit themselves to one another to rescue us, they will do so. They will do so. Would our lives be more joyful if our commitment were better? Yes, they would be. Would be more, we be more easy to live with if our commitment was better? Yes, I suspect that's true also. But nothing will snatch us from the Father's hand, and no one will snatch us from the Son's hand, he says, not even our own unbelief, unless we persist in it until the day we die. We cannot be taken out of his hand. We can't even worm our way out of there, even if we have wayward moments where we think we can. The perfection of the Father's commitment to the Son and the Son's commitment to the Father is greater than any imperfection you and I have. We have moments when our faith is stronger and moments when our faith is weaker. The commitment of the Father and the Son together to rescue us does not vary in those moments at all. Uh, That does not shake them. Uh, If anything, it encourages them all the more. If Gordon is this weak, he needs our strong commitment to rescue him. Right? And so, uh, our weakness is no match for God's strength. And our imperfection is no match for His perfection. And if the Father has given us from all eternity to the Son, then we will be the sons forever. And that's what this text says for us. If our redemption hinged upon our strength and our faithfulness, we would be utterly lost. Lightning could hit us in one of our bad moments, and that would be the end of it for us, wouldn't it? But it doesn't depend upon that. It depends upon the fact that the Father before all worlds gave us to the Son, and then the Son, in love for the Father, in redemptive love for us, entered the world to rescue us on behalf of the Father. So secondly, then understand this, then. It is the will of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to rescue the lost. It is the will of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to rescue the lost. Now, you probably haven't consciously doubted that, but I have doubted it before, and let me explain how I did it. I have often thought of the gospel this way. The Father is holy and dislikes me because of my unholiness. And the Son somehow wheedles him, the Father, into accepting me. As though there's a clash of wills, and the Son's will, right, to rescue 
overcomes the Father's will to punish. But it's the Father who sent the Son and not the other way around, right? And the Son came to do the Father's will. The Father is not some unwilling Father who does not wish us to be reconciled to Him. He is the one who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all. It is the entire Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who in their respective offices in the economy of redemption are committed to rescuing the lost. So, uh, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He didn't come to seek the lost, but to seek and save the lost. The text of Holy Scripture. And so... uh, The Son desires to rescue us. The Father desires to rescue us. The remarkably humble Holy Spirit, who is invisible to us, actually affects the change in our hearts. Because He also desires to change those hearts and make them better. And so, uh, whenever you are concerned that you're thinking too much about your role in this whole economy of redemption... Let me ask you a few rhetorical questions about what Christ has done to see if it puts it in another direction. Who left perfect intra-Trinitarian fellowship to come into the world in order to suffer and die for hostile sinners? Was it you? It was the second person of the Godhead. Who, as author of life, took on mortal flesh susceptible to weakness and pain and death? Was not you? It was the Redeemer. Who once attended by angelic beings, came to earth not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Was that you or was that Christ? Who, as a sinless being, and knowing full well the weight of the Father's just wrath against sinners, considered his end and said, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. Wasn't you who said this? who, adored by the angel, angelic beings, suffered the shame of the cross and even suffered the mockings of those who said he could save others, but he cannot save himself. Did you do this or did Christ do it? And who left the bosom of his father to stand as a sinner under his father's wrath and even from the cross had to say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did you do that or did the Redeemer do that? Beloved, we rightly celebrate God's gift of the Son. We should also equally celebrate God's gift to the Son. With all of our faults, with all of our sins, with all of our rebellions, with all of our pettiness, nevertheless, like someone who finds a a, a ragged diamond in a mine somewhere and says, I bet I can shape that into something beautiful, the Godhead knows what He, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, can do with an unshaped sinner and how he can make something beautiful out of it. It is the Father's gift to the Son and reciprocated back and forth all the way through. Each wishes to rescue the lost and it is right for us to long that day when they do so perfectly. And in between now and then, and whenever we have those moments when you rightly and justly and understandably say, I'm looking forward in the next life to seeing this loved one or that loved one and I have a number of them in there that I'm longing to see too. But always augment that thought with another. I want to stand one day in that great sea of people around the Redeemer when he says, here I am, and the children, 
you have given me to his Father. Let us pray. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, that we are weak, but you are strong. And we pray that you would help us to realize in our weakness that the whole world does not revolve around that, that even our salvation does not revolve around it. Help us uh, to delight in your love for your Son, his love for you, your mutual love for the Spirit, and his for you. We rejoice that together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have covenanted together to rescue us. And we pray that in the life to come, we will look back at these trials no longer as threats, but we will see them as remarkable achievements, how you preserved us despite our own weakness, our own wickedness, our own hostility to you and to your ways. Preserve, we pray, until that day, so that Christ may have his reward when he stands before you with those you have given him. We ask in his name. Amen.